Today we have Jerome Myers on the show. Are you looking to invest in multifamily properties? Jerome Myers left his corporate job as an engineer five years ago, and he hasn't looked back once. He's an owner in 90 doors over five properties. His focus is more on the JV opportunity side rather than syndication. Jerome has a heart for the tenants in his properties and for teaching others. He's a natural coach. He lives by a couple great quotes. Do good while doing well, inspired by Jim Rohn, and love on the asset, and the asset will love back on you. You'll learn how he invests, why he invests that way, his focus on coaching, and so much more. Listen and learn. Before we jump into the intro, if you have interest in learning how to invest passively, check out my five-step process for passively investing in real estate. You can download it for free by going to darrenbatchelder.com backslash learn and then select the free PDF. Now, onto the intro. Welcome to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show. Each week, you will learn how to grow your wealth through real estate investing, be introduced to the players that are getting it done, and learn how you can get involved. And now, here's your host, Darren Batchelder. A little background on Jerome Myers before we start the show. Jerome left his corporate America job five years ago. Since then, he started two successful podcasts, closed on five multifamily properties. This guy has a heart for helping others, helping tenants have a better place to live, and helping others learn how to get started investing in multifamily. Now, onto the show. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a very special guest. We've got Jerome Myers here with us. Jerome, appreciate you coming on the show. Darren, honored to be here. I'm a listener of the show, man. So anytime I get to go on the show, I listen to. Super excited to be a part of it. Fantastic. Well, um, just a little bit about how I know Jerome. So, um, you know, Jerome also has a podcast in the multifamily world. I see him all over social media. This guy is a mover and a shaker. And um, he was kind enough to have me on his show and um, just a great guy. So I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Um, typically, first question I ask is how many properties and how many units are you currently invested in? Yeah, so I am the asset manager on everything that we do. And so we've got about 90 doors across five properties in Greensboro, North Carolina and Richmond, Virginia. Fantastic. So with that, you, one of the things that I know that, um, you know, we talked a little bit about it when, when I was on your show um, or when we were off recording. And also um, I've seen some, some comments in some of your documentation that you really prefer the JV over doing syndication. So talk about why that is. I mean, I, I have a lot of syndicators on the show and syndicators love to talk about how many units they have and, and just charge forward. Like, you know, their goal is thousand, 5,000, 10,000 units. So why do you like the JV model over syndication? 
Yeah, I think maybe it's just me being selfish. I like to own more of what I, I'm in control of, right? And so a lot of folks go into deals and they're chasing door count, but it's not really changing their net worth, nor is it changing their cash flow situation. You know, if you own 0.001% of a deal, uh, you don't really have a whole lot of say. And I think the other piece of it, and maybe I'm just a little bit bitter. So I'm a corporate America dropout. <laughs> and one of the things that I did not like was one of the top priorities was maximizing returns to shareholders. And I think about syndications in the same way. You got to figure out how to get the people who are holding a piece of the deal, the LPs, as much money as you can. There isn't a whole lot of decisions between the partners on what's best for the actual community or the residents at the community. It's, it's all about how much money you can make. And that's fine if that's what you're after. But when I dropped out of corporate America, I realized that money wasn't my primary motivator. And with that said, I know that you can make money and do what's right. And even though it may not, you may not be optimizing for making as much money as possible, I think you can make an impact on the community as well as put some money in your pocket. So do good while doing well. Absolutely. I love, I love a do good while doing well. Hey, so talk about what is your primary motivator? Yeah, it's, it's not just mine. One of the guys that's invested in all my deals, his name is James Bryant. And when he took a detour from paying off his home to start putting money in real estate, he said, Jerome, I want my investments to make an impact. And that hit me in my heart because it was like I was the guy who was chasing money. I wanted to have the biggest house. I wanted to have the coolest car. And I was just buying things to try to re replace or fix holes in my soul. And then when I left corporate, I was like, man, I really want my life to make a difference. I want to make an impact. And when I started looking at apartment buildings, because for everything I buy, I go in every unit, and I started seeing the conditions that people were living in, and I started really getting to understand like the plight of the folks who were living in workforce houses and how there's cognitive dissonance between the owners and the residents. And you know, if you don't pay attention to your property manager, you're your units, your assets can end up in pretty poor condition. And I said, I, I don't want to be that type of investor. The type of investor I want to be is one that's making the lives of the people who live in our communities better because we're giving them a great place to live. But we're also improving the area around our assets because we're holding it to a higher standard than what a whole lot of people may do when they're optimizing for money. You know, if you have a property, you may not spend money on something that isn't going to give you an immediate return if you're trying to get as much cash on cash as possible. But for us, we feel like if you love on the asset, the asset will love back on you. And in that you know, mutually beneficial relationship, we think that long range we'll be able to create huge returns and not just ones that are you know, going in your pocket. I love that saying that you just came up with love, love on the asset and the asset will love back on you. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, Darren, what I find, cause our avatar for the person that we buy these properties from is somebody that's, you know, a mom and pop owner, usually they're something 55 or older and they've got the majority of their wealth tied up in the building. 
And what's happened, especially in COVID, is their cash flow has dried up because people haven't paid as they normally would have, and they have a hard because the residents have been there a long time. And so these folks are trying to figure out how to unlock their capital. Well, what also happens when they run their business that way is that they don't have enough money to make the repairs that are necessary. And so they end up in this downward spiral when they don't raise the rents as they should, and they don't have the capital reserves in order to keep the property at a high level. And so they have a choice. They can continue to ride it down or they can exit it and exit it at a price that they probably wouldn't be able to get if they went to market because they don't have a property that's actually, you know, market ready. Sure. And, and so then you take it to the next level from that, from that standpoint. Well, all of our projects have been construction. Oh, new construction? No, the, no, but I mean, there's always been a renovation plan right. for everything that we've bought. It's it's never something where it's already working well and we we just come in and take care of the cash flow. Absolutely. Um, so you you mentioned impact. You know, um, I've you know I've talked to a lot of different people and and people have you know, a heart in different, in different areas. And I could tell your, your heart is really in providing, you know, a great living environment for the tenants. And then that will pay you back dividends. Um, you know, for me, I'm, I'm kind of a business guy, numbers guy. And, you know, I'd be sitting in church and, you know, church pastors always talking about, you know, serving, right. And, and, I always had a hard time with like, I just don't really want to go clip bushes or pick up garbage or, you know, like get into the community. You know, I know that if I do it, I'm, I'm going to feel good afterwards. But um, one of the things that this business has provided me is, is that I feel like, you know, we're in a position to help other people learn how to grow their wealth. You know, that so many people are, just taught to take a certain percentage of their income and put it into 401ks and stocks. And, and then there is actually another way. And so my mind and my serving kind of is geared more towards the investor. Like I feel like I can help grow the wealth, you know, teach people how to do it or they can partner alongside me. Um, but you know, it is kind of cool, like when I'm walking across the parking lot and uh, say we just painted a property and a tenant is like, holy cow, the property looks so much better. I've been living here for 10, 15 years and like finally somebody's putting money into it, you know, and it kind of catches me off guard because that's not where my initial thought is or my initial heart is, is, is more towards um, helping other people grow their wealth. And, but you come at it from the standpoint of the tenant, which is freaking awesome. You know, I, I love that. In, in a lot of ways, I mean, even though people don't get excited about this, they're your customer, man. They are. So if you serve your customer, Absolutely. Well, you know, they don't go somewhere else, right? What, what I've learned through the operations of our properties is if a person moves out of your unit every year, you'll never get cash flow positive because you spend money on the turn. And the turn just kind of eats up all the profit. And so 
what we really want to do is get people who are there to stay there for two, three, four years. And that's when we can really get profitable on the units. And the only way that I think people actually stay is one, you fulfill their maintenance requests. And I think two is you give them a great environment that they're proud to call home. Right. Everybody's not going to buy a big house. Everybody's not going to go buy a trailer or live, you know, in one of those tow behind things. <laughs> At the end of the day, everybody's got their different decisions on how they're going to live their life. And there are some people who are just going to be renters for life. You know, we have some residents at one of our smaller properties who have been there since it was built. And that that property was built in the 80s. Wow. Right? And they plan to stay there until they die. And so while we will raise rents, while we will make investments in the property, we want them to be really excited about where they live. Because if they're not, then we have to turn that unit. We have to update it. We have to market it. We We've got all the expenses that come with making a transition. And so I, my, my friend James that I mentioned earlier, he talks about them being your partner. I'm not going to go as far as him, but I will say they are your customer. And the moment that you forget about that is the moment that you get in this position where your property may end up empty or something else that's far worse because somebody decided to retaliate because they weren't treated well. Yeah, that's, that's huge. Um, and you know, coming out of just from the business side, not even the feel good side is, is, you know, retention rate, like as you're talking about is, is huge because if somebody stays in the property, they're typically annual leases, right? And, you know, you come up on a renewal and if they stay in the unit, you have no additional cost, right? But if they move out to your point, there's a lot of different costs. So for the listener's benefit, you know, talk about some of the costs associated when somebody moves out, even if you're not upgrading the unit. I mean, if you're upgrading the unit, that's one piece. But if you're not upgrading the unit, you know, talk about some of the costs associated with that. Yeah, I mean, at the minimum, there's paint. Usually there's some damage to the floors. And, you know, people will talk about, well, you got a security deposit. Uh, depending on how much your security deposit is, it probably won't go very far. And so what I hear most people say a unit turn cost, depending on the size of it, is somewhere between $1,000 and $3,000. And so if you look at, and I don't want to nerd out on the math, I can, but if you look at how much money an operator makes per door on a unit, and then you back that out, and then you compare it against the turn of a cost, you'll see that the break-even point is past a year. For most people. And so if that person moves out, you did nothing but make enough money in order to pay for the turn. And that is terrifying because if half of your property turns or 60% of your property turns each year, then let's say that your profit per unit was $100 a month. And I I don't want to get too elaborate in the math, but let's just say you end up only getting $60 out of that $100 in profit that you made. That isn't going to be exciting for anybody to be in a business because it drops your returns down below the double digits that most people are seeking when they make one of these alternative investments. And so when you think about the risk reward on it, you know, some people would say, well, it might be safer for me to put my money in the market because of the liquidity piece. And others who are like, well, it's a hard asset. You don't have to worry about inflation and some of the other stuff. I want to park my money here. At the end of the day, 
I think both people are right. It's just a matter of their risk tolerance and what they see as risky versus being unrisky. You know, liquidity for some people is the holy grail. For other people, they know they're not going to use it. And so they're willing to lock it in for a little while. But I don't think they want to lock their money up and get a return less than what they could get if they could go in and out of the market as they please. No, absolutely. Um, And I think that that's an overlooked um, area for a lot of people that are new getting into the industry is, is that retention rate and keeping people and, and the thought of building community, you know, so I've, I have met other syndicators that have a heart like yours um, that is really focused on the tenant and um, you know, they'll partner with third party um, charities that will come in and like give free backpacks to the kids, you know, when they start in school or, or do other types of programs. And it doesn't even have to be any cost out, you know, to the property, but it takes some initiative to go out and build those relationships with the charities and, and, and get them involved. Um, so let's talk about, you said you're an ex corporate America guy. What, what, what were you doing before you got into real estate? Yeah, I did a lot of things, right? But I'm formally trained as an engineer. And so my last role was building a $20 million division for a Fortune 550. We were taking overhead power lines and moving them underground in eastern Virginia. And so, you know, my group was responsible for securing the real estate rights, doing the engineering of the actual power line, the new, the new configuration, and then I, and construction crews putting it in the ground. That's a big responsibility, my friend. <laughs> it was a wild ride, Darren. When did you leave that? Yeah, so I exited in, oh man, it's been five years, man. I've been out of the matrix for a whole five years. And, you know, what's crazy about that was um, I was employee number two in that group on January 13th of 2015. And by September 30th, we had 175 people on my team. And at the end of that year, we hit the $20 million mark. We had 30% profits. And I get the phone call on Christmas Eve. And the guy who I reported to said, "Uh, I know we've been going back and forth about this, but uh, we're going to lay half of them off. Oh, no. I go into my, my... proclamation of how wrong this is and we're not going to do this and there's got to be another way. And he lets me go on for about two minutes and then he says, uh, Jerome is 459. I'm going to go spend the rest of the year with my family. I'll talk to you next year. And he hangs up on me. And I knew then that there was something wrong and something inside me died at that point because I, I just, I'd never done it before. And then I have to do it in the way that we were doing. It just didn't make sense because I had the illusion that like I had the autonomy to do what I wanted to do. I was making money and, you know, nobody was really checking in. I was seeing people once a quarter. I was talking to them every other week. And so I I vowed that, you know, I would stick through it. We put Humpty Dumpty back together again and we ran another year. And then it was a couple of days before Thanksgiving where I'm standing in front of the room again and saying, hey, don't spend all your money on Black Friday. Not sure what's going to happen. And that was when the rest of the desire to be in corporate America died. Because I was like, man, I I don't want to do this ever again. 
And it was at that point that I actually took responsibility, right? Before it was, they made me do it. This isn't something I would do. They made me do it. And then it was like, well, I'm part of the problem because I'm participating in the system. And so that's when I decided that I, I, I was done. I was going to do something else. And so I started chasing real estate. Wow. I didn't, I didn't realize your story. Um, you know, but I think, I think that that holds true for a lot of people in corporate America is that, is that you think it's the safe place. You think it's the safe play to have a W-2 job, you know, but you're really at risk. All, you know, a lot, most people have just one income source and they're chasing up the corporate ladder um, to make more each year. But at any point in time, you can get that phone call, you know, and it's, I've, I'm sure you know many people too. It's not like it's always the people that are at the bottom that are just no good at their job. I mean, they're, I've met, a, I know a lot of great people that were part of layoffs and they were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, another company acquired them and they brought in new people and those new people wanted their own people and all of a sudden they're out, you know, and that's a scary place to be. And that was my, my biggest challenge with the first go around because, yeah, we did have some fat and that fat wasn't, something that gave my heart a ton of burn, right? But the people who were good, right? The people who right. were actually product productive, I, I it, it tore me up, man. It, it broke my heart. And I'll never forget getting a phone call that one of the people that we laid off, he was in a really rough spot. His wife left, uh, he tucked the kids, Eventually, he lost his transportation because he wasn't able to find a new role. And then mm. he eventually ended his life. Oh, no. Uh. And because he lost everything and he really, I guess, kind of lost his dignity. And so that for me. You, I mean, you know, look, you know, if there's anybody out there, you never lose every, everything, right? I mean, you, you, you can get help and you can move forward. You know, let's just say that. So if there's somebody else out there that feels that way. Um, you know, there, there is always the opportunity to move forward, um, and get help and, and it doesn't have to end like that. It doesn't. Um, but you know, that was a story he told himself and, you know, I, in a lot of ways, if, at least initially, I felt like I was part of the reason why he was there and that, you know, in the end that ended up being traumatic for me because I didn't want to be the cause of pain and I, I didn't want to. I didn't want to be the guy who helped create a situation where somebody felt like they were in a corner and couldn't do anything else. No, that's, that's huge. Um, so you said, um, you know, story he told himself, you know, let's take that as a segue to talk about mindset because what happens in between, you know, your two ears and your head is a big, big impact on how your life is going to go. Right. So if you keep telling yourself, you know, that you're, you have no value or you can't do this or you can't do that, or you, you know, you think negative thoughts or you're thinking about doing things that, you know, you know, aren't right, that perpetuates on itself. And the opposite is true also. 
right? And so how did you go from that? And then you, you didn't have multifamily, you know? How did you make that transition out of corporate world and then believe that you could do it? Yeah. So I think it was ignorant bliss, right? You know, uh, Bumblebee doesn't know that they can fly. And so I was out here doing all the things. And so I went to LoopNet, got the deal off LoopNet, put my business plan together, went to the bank and said, don't you want to give me a million dollars? And he said, no. I was like, what do you mean no? <laughs> I said, well, I got some money in the bank. I got an 800 credit score. Like, why, why wouldn't you give me any money? And he said, well, you don't have any experience. I said, what do you mean? I got an MBA and I'm a professional engineer and a project management professional, Six Sigma Master Black Belt. What credential do you want to prove that I have experience? He's like, well, have you ever owned a property of this size and executed the business plan that you're proposing? I don't have any of those. <laughs> I don't have any of those credentials. And so I said, you need to go find a partner. And that was when I realized that I had spent my whole working career not doing any of the things necessary to get me to the place I really wanted to be. So when I was a sophomore in college, I realized that I wanted to own apartments, but I didn't know how to get there. And right. I figured, well, if I go get into corporate America, then I can make some money, get some credentials, and uh, get a credit score, and then the bank will be excited to give me money. But the bank doesn't invest in dreams. They invest in proven operators with great business plans. And so I needed to go find a network of people or somebody who had that. And I didn't know where to go. So after going to 10 banks, because I thought each one that I talked to before was just idiotic and didn't know what they were talking about. And that wasn't the way things got done. I finally gave in and I pivoted, started fixing and flipping, using hard money because I was a hard money lender when I was in corporate America. I was giving money to guys, letting them do their rehab projects, seeing them make a huge return and taking my double digit interest payment. But sure. I questioned like, well, these guys can't be smarter than me. Like, surely I can go do that. And so staying as close to real estate as I could or, you know, apartments as I could, I got into some deals and I was sitting on the porch of a 1920s build where we were doing a $90,000 rehab, Darren. And I'm there every day at like six o'clock in the morning and I'm leaving after six o'clock at night because I'm proud and I'm going to do it and I'm going to fix the thing. And the guy pulls up in a white Dodge Ram. He hops out. He says, hey, bud, I, I want to check out your finishes. Uh, we're getting ready to do a house down the street. And I was like, okay, come on. And I'm proud now, right? Because somebody wanted to see what we were doing. And after being beat up by the banks, somebody actually cared about my little house project. So he goes through, he walks in, he sees all the stuff, and he's getting ready to walk back out. And he says, hey, do you know anything about that building behind the Chimbo Mart? I said, the 23-unit apartment building? He's like, yeah, I'm going to make an offer on that today. I said, you're the guy I've been looking for. Right? Please don't leave me out because you have to have experience if you're going to make an offer on the building. He's like, yeah, we own some stuff. It's like, man, please don't leave me out. What do I got to do? He said, well, what are you going to bring to the table? I said, I don't know, but don't leave me out of this deal. You're the guy I've been looking for. And the bank said I need somebody with experience. He said, well, what are you going to bring to the table? And again, I told him, I, I don't know. We'll figure that part out. Just don't leave me out the deal. And so he gave me another chance, Darren. And he said, what are you going to bring to the table? I said, look, man, I don't know. I just know that this is what I want to do, and I need you to bring me in a deal. And 
looking back on it, I see how silly I was, right? I didn't spend any time articulating my value. I didn't talk about any of my training. I didn't tell them I had capital to bring to the deal. I, I didn't say any other things, but mainly because I didn't know any better. I just wanted to tell him, hey, I, I can do the work and we can get this thing done. And so he walks off and he walks through the yard, hops in his truck and drives off. And this is a Wednesday. I'm like, he'll call me by Friday when he's got it under contract. Friday came and went nothing. Whole weekend, nothing. Monday of the next week, I was like, all right, they got through the weekend. They got through negotiations. Today is the day. Nothing. And then my heart began to sink. And I thought to myself, wait, he doesn't even have my phone number. How is he going to call me? Tuesday comes and goes. Friday of the following week comes and goes. And then Tuesday of the following week, I get a phone call from a guy. He said, hey, man, they just asked me to be a general contractor on this project that you and I talked about five months ago. I told them I'm only comfortable doing it if you're involved in the deal. And it was like fireworks went off. I was like, okay, so was it that guy? It was a different guy, right? So one of the guys I used to lend money to when I was in corporate was a pretty well-known general contractor. And they reached out to him to be in charge of the construction for this new complex that we were going to buy. And he and I talked about it months before when I tried to buy it, but didn't have the right relationships. And so he circled back on it. And so got me to the table. The same guy who I talked to in my rehab house was the guy who had the contract, but he needed a team. And so it was the three of us together. And then we added in a property manager who put some equity in the deal. And then the broker rolled his commission in. And so the five of us tucked down this deal and we did everything, man. And... When I say everything, roof, parking lots, landscaping, new HVACs and all the units, because they didn't have them. A lot of them were still window units. Um, taking walls out because these were townhome units. Granite, stainless steel appliances. And we even, because we added a laundry room on the first floor, we had to replace the main drains underneath all the buildings. And they were on slab. It wasn't like there was a crawl space where we could just go in and do it nice and easy. And so jackhammers, all the things are happening. And while we're going through this, an article comes out in a newspaper and it says something along the lines of rising real estate investor partners with proven operators to revitalize Church Hill townhomes. And I'm like, who are they talking about? And then I see my name in the paper and I wasn't the only one that saw it. And so banks are calling and they want to create relationships and It's just amazing to see how much closing that first deal can change the way that people see you. And so we harnessed those relationships and um, came down to Greensboro, North Carolina, and started buying deals here. And that's where our focus has been, just trying to... So a few things on on what, what, what you went through in that story and how others can learn from that. Um. First of all is, is that, you know, you believed in yourself enough to keep on saying like, look, get me involved. Like, I don't know what my value is, but, but get me involved. That, you know, confidence level is, is key. Um, and, and the belief and the determination to keep moving forward. Um, but you know, one, one of the learning lessons probably is that you could have spent some time to identify you know, what is your value? And then, you know, what, what are you missing? 
And so those are the, you know, the partners that you want to go after. So, you know, when people reach out to me and they're, they feel like they're too young and they're too old or they don't have enough money or don't have enough experience, whatever the case may be, everybody has value, right? So figure out what your value is and what you're missing and then go find somebody else that has what you're missing but wants what you've got, you know? And um, that could be capital raising. It could be, you know, some people um, don't realize this, but some people don't want to be out there chasing the deal. You know, they, they want so they want a young, hungry person to go out and find the deal and run all the numbers and get everything squared away and then come to them and they've got the balance sheet and the capital and the, the relationships and boom, there's a partnership, you know? And it only takes one or two deals and, and all of a sudden you build a reputation for yourself. Right. And that's the thing that I didn't know. And, you know, when I hear people coming into the space and they're trying to get their deals done, you know, the thing that I know now that I wish I knew then was, you know, there's four things you have to overcome. Knowledge, deal flow, experience, and capital. And most people try to get that done out of order. They say, well, I'm going to go buy something, so I need capital. But capital is the last piece. And your capital is even a small piece of the big capital because usually the debt is going to bring somewhere between 65 and 80%, right? But you're not going to get the 65 or 80% of the money until there's somebody that's experienced involved in the deal. And nobody experienced is going to get involved until you actually have a deal. Deals and leads have the same letters, but they're not the same thing. The only way you can tell the difference between a lead and a deal is if you have the knowledge. And so for everybody out there that wants to get in a space and they're like, well, I listen to Darren's podcast and now I'm ready to go buy a deal. Here's what I'll, I'll liken it to. And Darren, I mean, I, I know you've done really well. You, you've done the distressed debt, right? So here's the thing, man. I'm starting my MMA career and my first fight is going to be with Conor McGregor. Okay. Now. Are you kidding me? No, you are, or you're just saying this? No, no, I am seriously. We're going. Our first fight is with Connor. Come on! Now, in order for me to get when is that going to be? I want to see that. I want to see that. Well, come on. We we got to get to the fight first, Darren. I need half a million dollars to get to the fight. That's my buy-in. Got to get everything in there, and if I win, I'll return a twenty percent return to you. If I lose, then you can lose all your money. All right. Now, here's the thing. Right? I, I've listened to a few podcasts, I read a few books, and I'm ready to get in the game. Are you gonna make that investment? Because I can send you the wire Look, you're right an, now. you're you're a nice guy, my friend, but I'm not I'm not, I'm not investing in that. Come on. It's <laughs> I'm, me versus I'm sorry, Connor. man. You you look like you could you're in good shape and you could probably do well in the ring, but you know, I I've, I'm not taking that bet. Yeah, and that's how I think about apartment buildings. I think they're wild animals, and we're asking people who we barely know to send money to do things that we really don't know how to do. We think we do in concept, but we don't really understand what's going on. And so that understanding, truly having knowledge, having somebody look over your shoulder, I think is the way that you go from being in a space where you have an idea of what's going on and knowing what's going on. And I, that is the way that I think most people get in trouble. And this is part of the reason why I'm challenged by the whole syndication model. Because we go out, we raise money, and we say, oh, well, yeah, I, I know what I'm doing, 
but we're using other people's capital to learn with. And I don't think so, that's fair. Yeah. So I, I would, cause I'm in the syndication space. So I would, I'll come at it from a little different angle. Um, I still think that in the syndication space, you need to partner with somebody that has experience. Okay. percent. Um, so, you know, my first syndication deal, I partnered with a, a gentleman outside of Chicago, um, Raj Gupta, and, and he had 10 years plus experience in doing all types of real estate, including large multifamily transactions. And he kind of acted as my board of directors. You know, any of the major um, decision points, I'd go to him and be like, you know, hey, this is what I'm thinking of doing. And most of the time he's like, Darren, run with it. And every now and then he'd say, you may want to consider this. And, you know, he didn't call me a dumbass. He just said, you may want to consider this. And, and I think about it, I'm like, oh, wow, that's smart, you know? And um, it, it helped me from making some rookie mistakes by having a senior guy. So I think you can do the syndication business and still have experience on your team. I wouldn't recommend partnering with three completely new guys, raise a bunch of money from people and just have a bunch of rookie mistakes, you know? But if you partner with somebody with experience, you could still get that knowledge and that learning um, by doing that. And you also learn from the partners, you know, you learn from the attorneys, the attorneys, you know, when they're negotiating the contract and helping you, you learn what they look for, you know, what are they redlining and why, um, your property management company, you learn how, how they operate. And then some of, some of it makes a lot of sense. And some of it, you're like, you know what, why don't, why don't you tweak this a little bit? And then, you know, they're working for you. So, you know, they're, they're happy to do that most times. Um, so that's, that's kind of where I would come at a little different slant. Um, that syndication doesn't have to be, um, completely taking a major risk if you partner with the right people. I agree with you. I, I think you need somebody looking over your shoulder. I think about it like driver's ed, right? You don't, you don't just get the keys and you go. Like there's somebody riding in the car with you, helping you avoid the bridge and making sure you're looking out for that deer. But at the right. end of the day, what I do see a lot is we don't have any money. We don't have any experience. And so we think that we can go out and take down Moby Dick, which is the biggest apartment building we can think of. And then we get all these people to put our money in. And then we get into operations, something goes sideways and we personally can't fix it. And so now we're doing capital calls. And what it does is it, it taints people who come into the space because they trusted somebody who didn't know what they were doing from ever doing right. another deal with this incredible wealth building and creation tool that we have in multifamily investing. Yeah, that's, that's a shame. And, and in today's market, you know, what I would say is, see the brokers that are representing most of the deals in, in these larger syndication uh, multifamily deals, they're not going to typically recommend a buying group if it's a bunch of first timers. The only time they'll recommend that is if they're way overpaying, you know, if, if they're paying dramatically more and they're putting down dramatically more hard money day one, they may take, tell the buyer, you know what? Hey, they're putting down, you know, double the amount of hard money. 
you know, you could take a, you know, chance. And if, if they don't work out, then you got the hard money and you just take it out to market again. Um, but if, if they're on par with other people, it's, they're going to recommend the tried and true operators. I agree with you completely. What, but the thing is people are so desperate to get a deal done recently that they'll pay whatever just to say they did a deal. And that's where right. my stomach gets in knots. And then so, yeah, people so, who know even less are putting their money yes. in behind it. So with that, okay, I understand your point. You know, look, if you're listening to this and you're looking to get in the space and you're maybe you're a first-time passive investor looking to get in the space, you know, look at the track record of, of all the general partners in the deal, you know, and make sure there's some experience there. You know, it, it could be a new guy partnered with an experienced guy, but make sure that there's somebody that knows what they're doing, right? Um, and that's very important or else, you you know, you are putting yourself at risk by, by investing in that. Hey, let me switch up a little bit. Um, I know that you've, look, you've got two podcasts. So I want you to talk about like, not just one, but two, why, and what are they focused on? And then you also have a, um, a conference coming up in February. So I would like you to talk about that as well. Yeah. So the podcast. So the first one is Multifamily Missteps. And we were fortunate enough to have you jump on with us. And what I found when I was going through the space, Darren, when I got in, I was like, I got to learn as much as I can. So I was listening to 40 hours of content a week. And what started to frustrate smart. me after I got Very the smart, first man. Well, I'll, I'll come back to that. What, what, I, what frustrated me when I got into my first deal was I felt like an idiot, right? Everybody who went on the podcast was talking about all of the great success they were having. They never made any mistakes. And here I am fumbling around trying to get permits and all this other stuff. It's like, wait, am I the only one that's having any challenges doing the thing? And then what I realized once I spent more time with operators was that, no, I wasn't. But these fireside chats, these war stories that were being traded were only reserved for the people who were in the game because everybody knew that everybody had their mistakes. Everybody knew that there were challenges, but we just didn't talk about them with the general public. And so I said, well, I have always learned more from my mistakes than I have from the things that went perfectly. So what if... I was able to get enough people who were in a space to come on and share stories that they didn't want anybody else to trip over on their journey, right? Because let's be clear, you and I aren't in competition. And if we are, it's for a very, very small period of time where we're chasing a deal and we're trying to figure out who can pay the most for it and still make money. Outside of that, the better you are, the better I am. Right. And right. if we're buying stuff that are adjacent, we raise our rents together, we're giving our clients great experiences. All of that is for the betterment of the community. And so that's what multifamily missteps was born out of. I was tired of the HGTV feel of multifamily investing. And I wanted people to you're, really You're right, man. There's a, most people talk about the good, you know? <laughs> so so that's cool that you did that. And then the other podcast is called the Dreamcatchers Podcast. And what we really look for is people who have exited the matrix or dropped out of corporate America. And what we want to know is the tools, tips, and techniques that they have for us to make our transition or our journey smoother, better. 
So what I found is that there's a whole lot of people doing things because they pay well, but not because they're actually in alignment with their mission. And so part of my life path, my journey, my mission is to help 100 people leave jobs they're not passionate about. They do that in a number of different ways. But the whole premise is if we can have people not doing things that they are not excited to do, but they pay well, and get them to do the things that they're really excited about, then they can make a difference in the world. And eventually they'll be compensated really well for it. And so Dreamcatchers gives them education, inspiration, and direction and helps them make that transition. That's, that's awesome. I, I think there's so many people that are in a, in a place where they make good income, but they're not happy or passionate about what they do. Um, but they let fear prevent them from taking a chance. You know, so I think that something like dream, dream catchers, you said, mm-hmm. yep. you know, is, is awesome to inspire people. Fantastic. And then, uh, and then you got a conference coming up. Talk about yeah, that, man. Yeah. So this will be one, two, three. This will be our fourth mid-Atlantic multifamily investing conference. And the way I like to brand it is we have the most diverse lineup of speakers in the country. Fortunately or unfortunately, the majority of our conferences only have white men who are between 40 and 60 years old talking. And on my journeys, I found that there are so many other races and specifically women who are in the space doing deals. And there's people like me looking for somebody who looks like them doing the thing. And that is really exciting for me. I, I still remember being an entry-level engineer at a company that had 17,000 employees, and we had 88 executives there, and, and there was one African-American man. And I would see him in the parking garage. I would see him in the hallways, and I would say, hey, Craig, you know, you inspire me. You give me hope that I could run a business unit one day. And he always say, well, it's not about race. You just have to do a good job, da da da, da. It's like, I understand that. But because you're actually there, I see that somebody that looks like me could actually do this. And so right. we created the conference to showcase people from all backgrounds so that nobody out there who wants to do this business has an excuse for why they can't do it anymore. It's really to inspire them, to encourage them, to excite them. And so we've had some really, really amazing folks come and share their stories and I'm the only one that has an educational product, so it's not a pitch fest as a lot of people get frustrated with when they go to conferences. People are literally sharing how they got to where they are, the things that they had to overcome, and or authentically sharing in a way that you won't get anywhere else because they're not posturing. It feels more like a family reunion than a... I'm great. You should put, place your capital with me. Awesome. So where is the conference and how do people find out more about it? Yeah, so they can go to myersmethods.com forward slash win 2022. And, you know, it's going to be a virtual event again. Uh, people are still a little weary about COVID, but hopefully when we do our fall edition, we'll be able to get in person on that one. Fantastic. Um, 
you know, I, I love the fact that you're giving back by doing all these things. I mean, two podcasts, virtual conference, it's a lot of work, man. You know, so, you know, some people are like, well, he's doing it because he wants this or that or whatever. Like, yeah, there's typically some kind of benefit to doing it, but there's a lot of work to do it. And you're giving back for free, you know, um, in a lot of different ways. And, um, let, you know, let's talk about networking, networking, um, when we were talking about before with all your missteps, right? Networking could be about finding partners. It could be about bringing passive investors in, you know, into the, into the mold that could end up, I know you're not a syndication guy, but if you are in syndication, you know, that may invest. Um, but when you were talking about your missteps, I was thinking about the network. I'm like, you know, I know people that like they get it, you know, they may be doing this for a while and all of a sudden they, maybe they have a fire, you know, at a property and they've never had that happen before, but they know another syndicator, another owner that had that happen to them. And they just pick up the phone and call that person and Hey man, how, you know, what'd you do in this situation? And within five minutes, they're like, Hey, it all is going to work out. Here's what's going to happen. It's so different than being on an island where you don't know anybody. You know, if you network, you can find answers much quicker. It's not just about getting the deal. It's also about managing the deal and, and um, you know, learning the business. Yeah, I think that that's the piece that most people miss with multifamily investing. You actually have to operate the business. You have to improve the net operating income in order to truly get that back-end number that you're looking for, which is the real pop, right? Cash flow is nice, but the incremental difference, the real shift in the valuation comes on the exit. And that only increases if you improve the net operating income. Absolutely. Um, so, hey, growing up, brothers, sisters, rich, poor, where'd you grow up? Yeah, so I'm the son of a soldier and a stay-at-home mom. Uh no brothers, no sisters. And, you know, I, I was a kid. I, I was pretty fortunate because it was just the three of us. But I, I do remember hearing my dad tell stories. He didn't tell me while he was going through it, but I remember being deployed in Korea. And instead of spending any money, he sent everything back home. And he would wow. drink sugar water to take care of himself. I remember... I, I didn't get it when he was doing it, but my dad was a jump master in 82nd Airborne and he jumped out of airplanes for extra $200 a month. He loved jumping out of airplanes, but the monetary reward, that extra $200 a month, was the difference between me getting an extra pair of shoes or us going out to dinner versus, you know, not having those shoes or those cleats for that athletic season or you know, going out and celebrating whatever we were celebrating. And the ramifications of him jumping out of airplanes for so long is, you know, he's had to have both his hips replaced and he's had intense arthritis since he was in his late 30s. And he lived in pain for a really long time and he still has some pain. But, you know, I if I could trade in every pair of shoes and every dinner for him not to be in pain today, I would. And so as a kid, I had no idea of the sacrifices that were being made for me to 
have the luxuries in life. But, right. you know, as an adult and as a dad, I get it now. And I, I know why he did it. And, you know, I'm just hoping that I can be half as good of a dad to my daughters as he was for me. And give my That's mom awesome. or buy my mom's freedom, right? Because, you know, because we weren't a two-income household, there were things that we couldn't do. And, um, but she had her time. And she was able to invest that time with me. And hopefully she's proud of her investment at this point. <laughs> well, that's awesome. You know, and I think that that, you know, that generation, they sacrificed in a different way than than we may sacrifice today. Um, so they would work two jobs or, you know, send money back, you know, travel to provide for the family and, and for, for that generation, that was a big sacrifice. And I, th- I think that in today's world, we see a lot of people like yourself that are, you know, they're giving back and sacrificing in other ways by teaching people another way, you know, to build wealth, another way to provide for their family, you know, where you do still get the freedom of time, you know, if you do that as an investor versus, you know, working a, a nine to five or nine to nine type of job. Yeah. And I still pick with him because he worked those Carolina half days, Darren, as you just alluded to. Six to six, man. And I, I still remember standing in the front yard and telling my mom I wanted to be a trash man because Lonnie was home when the kids got home from school and, you know, it was really cool to be able to see a dad play with their kids and you know I get to play with my dad on the weekend or you know in the summertime when the days got extended but you know in the winter if I wanted to play catch or if I wanted to do something else I wasn't going to see him before dark and you know I was a selfish little thing because it's like well I'm ready to eat (laughs) he's not here yet right (laughs) right we weren't going to eat before he got home so I absolutely get it man and that was one thing that I wanted. I wanted to be able to have time and location freedom. And so when I realized I was climbing the wrong ladder, I had to jump off that thing and try to get out of here and make a real difference. That's awesome. Now you do, um, you, you mentioned that you, you have some um, programs where you help other people, you know, learn how to do this. Talk, talk about that. Um, you know, look, I, I don't have that. Um, I, and I've interviewed, you know, a lot of people, some people that, you know, they're just chasing how many units they, they get and they're making a ton of money doing that. And other people that have built, you know, education platforms. And, you know, there's some people out there that are like, you know, they kind of, I don't know, are negative against that. And, and I'm like, look, you don't have to buy it, you know, but you like, have isn't it great it. that somebody is offering something to shortcut. You know, I joined a mentorship group and it took me a year to go from a duplex to a 76 unit complex. I don't, actually, I'm pretty certain I couldn't have done it without joining that group, you know, because it just gave me access to so many people. Actually, I met my business partner there. Um, You know, so talk about your platform and how you help other people. Yeah, so the Multifamily Kickstart program is born out of little Jerome and little Duran not having to go through what big Jerome and Duran went through. And so, like I said, me and my buddy were sitting on the stoop in college. And what happened was 
engineering students doing math in their free time. It was like, I'm paying $3.95. I got two roommates doing the same thing. You have the same thing going on downstairs. And we multiplied it out across the unit. The guy was making $700,000 a year, but we never saw him and talked to him. Now, for me, the son of a soldier and a stay-at-home mom, we didn't have anybody with a multi-million dollar real estate portfolio coming over to the cookout. So I couldn't go ask my dad, like, how do I do this? And then we fast forward through my time in corporate America and then my exit, I still didn't know anybody that owned an apartment complex, even though I wanted to be a real estate investor. I wanted to own apartments. And I didn't even know about the mentorship groups or any of that stuff. And podcasts were just kind of on the rise at that point. And so I was like, how do I make sure that somebody has access to a way to get this thing done? Because listening to 40 hours of content isn't practical for most people. In fact, I think it's the most inefficient and ineffective way to do it. Here's the thing. I can listen to your show. I can go listen to the guy from the Northeast, one from the Midwest. I can listen to mine. I can go down to the people in Florida and Texas. I can listen to all these podcasts. And what I'll find is that everybody's got their different perspective and nothing goes end to end that's going to walk me through the process. And that foundational process, I think, is the difference between doing a duplex and a quad and maybe a seven unit or eight unit next or going from two to 20 or two to 60 or, you know, something in between. And, you know, we encourage people to go for their first deal, buy something between half a million and 1.5 million, depending on what market you're in. Get a nice, solid deal under your belt. It'll be the hardest deal you've ever done but you'll know how to operate at that point. And then you can use that. I call it getting tuned in the boat. So you go do that deal. You make some money. You come back to shore. You lay your tuna out because everybody's on the dock seeing how big your fish are and how many you caught. And then when you go back out, if you caught fish, they want to go back out with you. And so you're building that track record. You mentioned that word earlier, track record. If right. You're building your track record. And so now more people are going out with you. Maybe you have a bigger boat. And so you got tuna that time. Let's get some swordfish or marlin. Come back. Lay them out. And then I think you can go shark or well hunting. Right? But what I've watched a whole lot of people do is they just want to go well hunting. They don't have the requisite track record. They don't have the experience. And they don't have a partner to help them go to that next level. And so... What I want people to do is go find deals. I want them to have some success, even if it's a smaller success, because that's what's going to keep them going. I don't want people to get frustrated and quit and decide that it doesn't work or it works for everybody else. It doesn't work for them. I want them to get into the game because this business can change your family tree. Absolutely. Man, so so much good there. So, you know, getting in the game, um, taking action. You know, for me, I I was having a conversation just earlier um, with somebody that, and I said, look, I bought a duplex, new construction duplex, and I was scared, I was scared shitless. Like, I had plenty of capital, you know, but it was the first time doing a real estate purchase other than my personal residence. And... And then now I just, I mean, earlier today, I wired money into two different syndications where I'm a passive and, and the investments were significantly more than, than that, you know, my investment on that duplex. And I'm not scared at all, but I never would have gotten there had I not taken the first step. So, you know, bite off what you can chew, 
right? You know, so wherever your mindset is, you know, whether it's buying a single family home or a duplex or a fourplex, or some people, you know, their mindset is that they can partner with somebody who has experience in a syndication, do that right out of the gate. It doesn't matter, you know, but you have to take action because like Jerome said, if you listen to 40 hours worth of podcast and you don't do anything, it doesn't really benefit you. And here's the other thing I would say, and I don't think people talk about this enough, but your success is not just for you. Like it feels like it is like your world revolves around you. Right. But, after you learn how to do it, your kids watch you, your aunt and uncle watch you, your friends watch you, business associates, and now all of a sudden, they come back to you and say, how'd you do it? And you share with them, and there's a ripple effect, and you can't see it now, but I'm telling you, if you go out and you take action, and you make it happen, other people are going to want to learn from you. And they're learning from you even if they don't talk to you. That's the thing that most people miss. And this is why the hundred pe- freeing 100 people is so important for me, Darren. There's somebody who you don't even know who's counting on you to do the thing you're supposed to do so that they can do their thing. And you are literally, when you decide not to step into that, I feel like you're literally snuffing out all the good that's supposed to come on the backside of what you're supposed to do. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about like all the people that, you know, look, if you get a hundred people that leave their corporate job and go after something that they're passionate about, and then all the people that are going to learn from them, I mean, that's just a massive ripple effect. That's huge. So, Hey, um, what's the next big stretch goal for you, my friend? Yeah, so I'm at a pivot point. I've got to decide if I am a real estate guy who does some coaching or if I'm a coach who has some real estate. That is literally where I am. That is the thing I'm contemplating in meditation every morning right now. And what I found- Where is it leaning? Coaching. I'm a coach coaching. with real estate. What I've found is I can help more people get more done by being a coach who understands real estate than being a real estate guy who tends to coach because the real estate is important. So our our coaching model has six levels, self-image, relationship, work, health, prosperity, and significance. And so the real estate fits really nicely in the prosperity piece and the work piece if they want to be active. And understanding that, actually knowing how to operate and evaluate deals puts me in a space that the mindset guys who coach real estate people can't add value on. And that really excites me. But the people who I'm most interested in, when you think about Kiyosaki's cash flow quadrant, you know, the employee and the self-employed sit over there on the left side. I see a lot of people going from there to investor, and I'm not certain that that's the place that most people should go. And so if you're already wealthy, then yeah, put your money in as an investor. But I think that business owner 
that quadrant is where you can exponentially grow your equity. And then you can take that equity out and invest it because you've got more leverage to pull. You have more control. There's more leverage there. And so helping people get in that B and then turn that B into I, I think is really, really where the biggest impact is. And so I'm, I'm in transition as we speak. You're, <laughs> I haven't told anybody that but you. Uh, so. I, well, I, I, love the, I love the fact that, look, that's the other thing. Just spending some time to think, man. Think about yeah. what do I really want? You know, what, do I, where, what am I passionate about? And how can I give back to others, you know? Um, and based on what you said, man, it sounds like the coach route is, is it for you. Um, hey, talking about those quadrants, you know, my wife's uncle um, has done very well for himself financially. And I remember asking him early on, um, hey, how did other people get wealthy that are kind of in your circle? You know, like, and he said, you know, I don't, I don't know too many people that saved their way to wealth. You can't. You know, it, it mainly came from either investments or starting a business. And, you know, that really struck home with me. Well, so, I mean, you know, that's what you did, right? I mean, your your business was was and is phenomenal. I mean, the I saw, I started a solved. business first, which which gave me the freedom of time. I, I was a you know coach to all my you know kids, uh, to both my kids growing up, and I I went to all the practices and all the games, and um, you know I made my own schedule and all that, um, you know. But I was missing actually, like real estate, you could really expand your wealth dramatically um, and also kind of have a other people there leverage other people doing it, you know, third party property management companies and, and whatnot. So um, I was missing that piece, but you know, I, I like both of those quadrants, you know, uh, starting a business, you know, and getting into investments uh, for sure. So, Hey, what do you like to do for fun outside of work? Yeah. Drive fast cars and international travel. You do? What kind of car do you drive? <laughs> what kind of car? Oh, man. You have, um, you have a lot of cars? <laughs> no, I don't have a lot of cars. No, of course not. Um, so we, I have a Nissan GTR. Okay. And, um, and you like to drive fast. Oh, I, I would never admit that on a recorded line, but I like fast cars. <laughs> did, I like cars you, that are fast. All right, there you go, there you go. Um, any trouble with the uh, speeding tickets? No, no, no. I haven't had a speeding ticket since probably twenty, maybe twenty ten. What about driving on one of those tracks with your with your private car? No, maybe. so that terrifies no. me because I don't think your insurance pays for that unless you pay for supplemental insurance. So I did do. My wife actually purchased for me one year a. Um, it wasn't with my car, but like they had cars and you went and learned how to drive on a track. And, um, it was pretty cool moment. Um, but I know a guy here in Texas that he does that for fun. He's got like two or three crazy fast cars and he, he brings them on the track. 
his own personal car on the track and in races. Um, so I I did do one of those track days, and I was fortunate enough to realize that I no longer want a Ferrari, and so I drove a Ferrari 488 and uh, oh, cool. Huracan. And I realized that I am an all-wheel drive car guy through and through. And so the next car after the GTR will be probably a Venador. Awesome, awesome. Well, listeners, um, I hope you enjoyed that one. Hey, definitely check out Jerome's podcast, okay? He's got two of them. Um, Check out his virtual summit and um, just... Listen to what he has to say is that like life's too short, man. He didn't say this, but life's too short not to take a chance. You know, get out there and do something, take action and do something that you're passionate about, whether it's start a business or get into investing. Um, Until next week, signing off. Thank you for listening to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show at darrenbatchelder.com. If you liked the episode, please provide us with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. If you already provided us with a five-star review, then thank you. And please share the show with a friend. 